This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show. My hours have been maxed out these last two weeks with doing some infrastructure building, building out a YouTube page, updating our Spotify playlist for every song ever played on every podcast that we have produced, launching a newsletter. I've also been recording new podcasts. The first will be with um, Dane Hans from Vulcan Surfboards. That'll be published next week. But in the midst of all this busyness, um, I haven't had the time to edit and publish new episodes. You might have noticed that I missed last week. So until next week's episode with Dane, I'm going to publish one today from the archives. This was originally published on February 28th, 2017. And it's a conversation with unflinching big wave surfer, champion spear fisherman, and part-time Hollywood stuntman, Mark Healy. I'm going to be in Hawaii soon, and I'm planning to reconnect with Healy to get updates on some of the things that we discussed here in this episode. And uh, so I figured this episode would actually be a good precursor to that, and one that's worth uh, reposting. So at any rate, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you are well, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Mark Healy. I don't even know where it was. It was in some video interview that you did about one of your most memorable ocean experiences being Mm -hmm. riding a great white shark, holding the dorsal fin, and maybe the first time that you've done it. Maybe you've done it more than once now. Mm -hmm. But there's also YouTube footage of you stiff-arming a tiger shark. Mm -hmm. And um, you know that... Like, even swimming with sharks sounds crazy to most people. Mm -hmm. Tell me what we don't know about sharks. What do you know about them that we don't and enlighten us? Why, yep. why aren't you afraid of sharks? Well, I'd say, um, I'm, I, um, I wouldn't say I'm not afraid of sharks under, you know, the right circumstances, the same way you saying, I'm not afraid of humans. You should be afraid of humans sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on the situation. Um, but it's just really based on, a foundation of experience. Okay. So I've been in the water with sharks showing up since a young age, probably like 12 years old, just from spearfishing. So that naturally happens. So basically when you're spearfishing, you're creating a lot of times like the perfect storm or scenario for sharks to show up. You're very quiet in the water. Um, you're not making a lot of like intimidating noises. You're trying to be smooth. Um, and you're also spearing fish, and it's creating that like that dinner bell going off, sure. and there's blood in the water. And usually, places that are rich with fish are rich with sharks as well. So it's kind of like this perfect scenario to <laughs> inadvertently attract sharks, and uh, and you kind of get a skill set and a knowledge base of dealing with like real wild sharks, yeah. not ones that are just fed at a feeding site all the time that are a little more accustomed to, to humans. Um, and in a lot of situations, you know, in my early days when I first ran into them, you, you don't really have a choice but to kind of deal with the situation sure. instead of just jumping out of the boat and being like, oh my God, it would have bit me if it came back around. You're like, 
oh my god, it's gonna bite me, and then you, but I got to deal with it, and then you realize like, no, it's not gonna bite me. Yeah. You're kind of forced to stay longer than you might want to, should you have an out. So it shows you, um, oh, okay, maybe I'm overreacting to this, and uh, you know that just taking that knowledge base and learning as I gain more and more experience, I kind of it's given me a realistic view on um, shark behavior and uh, most of the population doesn't hasn't had the chance or hasn't had the desire to go and do that so my fear threshold with sharks is obviously going to be pretty different than the average person what is a realistic fear to have of sharks Uh, a realistic fear is like you know if you're say surfing in south australia uh, outside of seal colony and it's pretty much any time of day <laughs> like <laughs> you have odds of getting hit by a shark there's certain places you know if you're around seal colonies in places that you just know that there's mm-hmm. large population of great white sharks during a season when they're coming in for seal pups or whatever there's there's certain risks that i don't feel are validated to take on a personal level sure um but is it safe to say that like the realistic fear is that they are um, hunting uh, seals or whatever their natural yeah. animal is, and you being there mm-hmm. in that colony is a mistake on your part? But if you're, yeah, yeah, it, it, when you're it's time and place, you can get unlucky. I mean, the same way you know, you drive on a freeway. Yeah, you're, you're, you should be much, much more afraid driving on the four hundred five. Right. Much more. Yeah. I think your odds are a lot worse there. Tell me about some of the work that you do with marine biologists. Um, So that has kind of spawned out of uh, working with sharks um, just in in different film projects and actually volunteering just to kind of be safety for some film projects. Oh, okay. And, you know, I started meeting people from the scientific community and, uh, you know, even working with GoPro on some of the shark projects, I kind of like... Naturally, I never set out for it, but it just kind of ended up happening that I people would kind of come to me with projects. And um, so I think it's super cool. I always wanted to be a marine biologist. Oh, really? Like I wasn't one of those kids when I was little that was like, I'm going to be a pro surfer. Yeah. Like I, that, it didn't seem realistic to me and sure. I was very interested in marine biology. Um, I always did well in school, but... Being that I was born and raised on the North Shore, the opportunity came to me. Right. Like if I wasn't in the, growing up in the spotlight of surfing, I don't think it would have went that direction for me. Yeah. I would have kept surfing big waves and enjoying it. But yeah. Um, so I have a, a real keen interest in it, and I enjoy it. Like when I go and do these things, uh, working with scientists, you know, you're in bunk beds, you're washing dishes, you're not getting paid. It's it's like work. On a boat for a long period of time. Yeah, or, and yeah. in the water, like, pounding, diving. Really? You know, eight-hour days. Wow. Um, so it's uh, it's it's a passion. And um, I, I just wanted to see what kind of um, tools that I have kind of in my kit that I can use to help realistically. And so I looked at it like, okay, I know animal behavior. I'm a good free diver. I know sharks well. I know how to use a spear gun really well. Um, so how about we expedite the shark tagging process because you have some limitations on scuba. It's like, okay, you can't go up and down too quickly. Um, 
you know, you have your decompression times in between dives. You can only do so many tanks to certain depths per day. And time is money on these things. Mm. And opportunity, because you're also dealing with weather windows. So the more you can maximize your time and get more tags out, the better data set you're going to get. And so through free diving, I'm actually able to approach at a, at a sharks that are a bit more wary. Okay. Because see, like tagging a, a great white shark or a big tiger shark is easy because they'll, they'll come in and you just bait them in and they're a lot more confident around you because they're huge yeah. <laughs> and they're the apex predator and they have thick skin. You're not going to injure them if, you're, if your tag's like six inches off. You can power up the spear gun that you're using for a tag if you're using one, which with more power, you're going to get more accuracy. Sure. So you can shoot it from further away. So it's that's easy. Like I don't need to be sent to go do those things. What really interests me are like the I did the first ever pelagic thresher tagging, and that was in the Philippines. And they're very scarce animals. They don't come in for chum. Um, we're actually uh, I was waiting for them. They'd only show up before the sun came up, like when it's like gray light, you could barely see. Mm. And um, they'd come in between 80 and 100 feet on this reef drop-off. They actually do circles to have these uh, cleaner wrasse fish that live in these different coral heads that they know and come back to um, clean the parasites off of them. So they're not motivated by feeding. So it's kind of more random, and it's interesting. got to dive deeper. And they're, they're not... They got their big thresher tail, which is really interesting. And they're cool-looking animals, but they're not... They don't want to come close to you. Right. So it's very challenging from an, you know, perspective of approaching them close enough to get a tag. And they're also a lot more sensitive. Their skin's not super tough and, and super thick. They're, you know, besides their super long tail, they're probably like five, maybe six feet. So you're looking at a target area at the base of the dorsal is actually really small. And you have to power the gun down because you don't want to injure them. So I got to get really close wow. and all those challenges. And then another one I did was the first tagging project ever in Japan, which is surprising because the Japanese are so up to date on technology, right? Yeah. You would think. Sure. And um, that's with uh, scalloped hammerheads. And it's a similar situation to where they're congregating for reasons debated um, at this site called uh, Mikimoto. Um, off a, not, it's about three and a half hour bus ride from Tokyo, which is surprising. It's teeming with life. And uh, they congregate there usually when the currents are really strong, you know, working in like three to four knot currents. And uh, they're not responding to bait, hmm. you know, so you can't chum them up. They're coming to do, they're coming together socially. So you got to go find them. And the thing is, is you can't really approach them from the bottom. They get really sensitive. So if you're on scuba laying on the bottom, you're like, okay, here they come. But those bubbles coming past their head can't ever get an angle to sink that tag at the base of their dorsal fin. So you kind of got to be dropping in on them at a 45-degree angle kind of over their tail, but a little cocked to their side. And, um, yeah, that was super challenging diving. No kidding, man. Wow. Wow. So do you ever think, I mean, you could always go back to school if you wanted to. You know, you can make a Mm. full career out of it from that angle. Is that ever an option or... Um, no, not really. Okay. I don't like sitting down too long. Um, <laughs> but but my goal with all of this is to uh, to really, if I can, you know, in a humble way, 
connect the two worlds of you know recreational or commercial fishermen yeah spear fishermen with the scientific community mm-hmm. because there's there can be quite a bit of a divide it's yeah. like two-party politics you know we get caught up in this like it goes from what's best for everybody to i just want to win the argument mm. you know so you know you have these two different sides you have the you know, some some sides on one end are like, I don't want any rules. I want to do whatever I can. I want to exploit. But especially in the recreational area, there's a lot more people that probably care about it more than anybody else. And I think their voices get buried a lot of times. But it, And then there's great scientists doing really good work. But then on the other end, a lot of scientists work off grants. So sometimes some scientists have to change their motives to kind of fit into the grant you know oh this elderly billionaire lady really likes otters so i'm going to get my research funded and skew my research a little or point in the direction of closing off like the whole coast of southern california to recreational fishing right so why would these guys who are spending more time and more knowledgeable on a first-hand basis going to want to give information to a scientist that's going to use it to shut them out of what they love doing yeah to make a name for himself so so it's i'm trying to be a connector to link up people with good motives that are really talented because we're working on borrowed time already and we can't keep messing around with this bullshit of he said she said right yeah the (laughs) politics the red tape yeah exactly you're awkward see um well I think that's kind of a nice transition, actually, into the subject of just making a living in the surf business, making mm-hmm. a living in general. And that's kind of a, a subject that comes up in this show a lot with everybody that we talk to. Traditionally, to make a living as a pro surfer, there's kind of two models. There is the contest surfer, and then there's the free surfer. And I feel like that free surfer category has actually been divided into a lot of different mm-hmm. ways in the last decade, more than it was previously. Where there's big wave free surfers, there's air guys, there's watermen, which I think was probably a category that you would fall into. Um, I don't think this was my first exposure to you, and I looked on YouTube for this footage and I couldn't find it anywhere, but were you in an MTV True Life episode? Yeah, a while ago. You were, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like it was maybe before Quicksilver, because like, the yep. storyline was like, you trying to make ends meet by like yeah. doing the triple crown came around. No, it could have still went out <laughs> when I was on Quicksilver. <laughs> I lived off of five hundred dollars a month period for three years. No way. Yeah, on the North Shore. On the North Shore, Brutal, side dude. jobs, whatever. At what age? So there was nine eleven happened. The economy went to crap. Um, did you have a main sponsor? I did. Like I was with Rusty forever. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and they kind of got me good. <laughs> the marketing director, some guy who came from Disney, came in and just you know wasn't that honest and it got me good. And at a late point, so see, this is a this is the deal, and this is kind of like honestly, it's it's a move that almost every surf company uses. And I always try to warn my friends. So what they will do is. As it comes, like, you're like, all right, deal's coming up. We need to start talking about it at least in August because, you know, the budgets always come in late. And they usually come in around, like, October, um, November even sometimes. So you're like, okay, we got to get the conversation started. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're interested, blah, blah, blah. And um, 
then they'll go dark on you for like the last two and a half months of the year. And so they'll sit, give you interest so you don't go and look around because they know they basically got you by the short and curlies as soon as it gets that that last so there's a holiday week where nobody's in the office at the end of December so if you haven't had a comparable offer by middle of December they know that already what happens is they don't get back to you till because those other offers that budget money would have disappeared they got to use it before it disappears and then you know January 5th when they get back in the office they're like oh yeah about what we told you it's going to be half they all do that to surfers. Yeah. So it's a, it's a minefield for a professional surfer, sure. aspiring one. So that kind of happened to me there. And so, okay, it's already into the next year. All budgets are gone. Um, you don't want to go just – if you're smart about your career, you don't want to just go and take money from anybody. You know, you look towards a long-term goal and what really yeah. fits with you. So I ended up going – but I still had Reef. They were great. They stuck to me. So – I was making 500 a month for them, so I did that whole year. And then I got picked up by Quicksilver for 500 a month, but they told me I had to drop Reef. Oh, no. (laughs) So I was back to making only 500 a month, and I had to cut ties with a company that really stuck by me, which I felt terrible about, but I had to like look at the future of it. And then, yeah, I was at that rate for two years. And so was that like late teens, early 20s? That was early 20s. Okay. Late teens. So... Yeah, that True Life MTV episode, it was like living from contest to contest, essentially. Then the Quicksilver came along, you know, and then that went away, obviously, between 2001, 9-11, and then financial crash in 2008. Probably had a few good years there. But at 2008, the Quicksilver had this huge culling where they got rid of pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I remember you you were on Depactus for a short period when they were around for a short period and I was glad to see that happen and I actually really was impressed with like their branding and what Mm -hmm. they were potentially going to do you know and so Mm -hmm. it was sad to see that disappear as well but it's like you're a guy who you've had great potential you've had um, Mm -hmm. in terms of surfing ability and uh, exposure and all that like you are out there it's just kind of got a deal with the wrong company at the wrong time with the economy doing what it's done so i feel like you're a great guy to have the conversation with which is just like how do you make a living as a pro surfer nowadays you know uh so like how you were talking about earlier there's the free surfer kind of niche yeah and you know that's been subdivided into big wave surfer every guy or whatever right but what you have to keep in mind is that free surf pie of money is probably a third of what it once was and it's got more different niches in it I agree. And um, there's maybe only one or two guys at the top of that pie. And like there's no middle there's, there's not there's, a, few there's not a lot of middle class and it's it's only going to this trend is only going to continue for sure. I agree. I'd say 100%. There's like no middle class. It's but like, then also like a lot of the see, see this is what's changed a lot. Surfers are now before it was like you remember all that stuff when outside brands were coming in and trying to sponsor WSL con- or ASP contests at the time, and yeah. surf companies get super up in arms. They're like, "No, you can't have an outsider." Or somebody even like Nike comes in and like, you know, the, the surf media and the surfers kind of jump all over them. Like, you guys aren't surfing. You know, you're coming from the outside. I think the tables have totally turned. 
or the tides have totally turned in that now surfers go and buy non-surfing stuff. They do, totally. And they're, nobody's wearing head-to-toe billabong or whatever it is. It's, it's you know, people, you're going to see a surfer go buy a pair of Carhartt pants and maybe a Lululemon shirt if they're, you know, over 25 years old and have some cash. Right. Uh, so I think those days are over. I think the surf industry got really cocky with how easy money was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And they kept repeating the same things that they could pull off then as the economy got tough. And finally realized a little late that they got too big and too spread out. They got um, they grew a lot in that period of time. Yeah. And and it's crazy watching so many different companies. Like You have to be, really be careful about fast growth. It's a killer. Oh, yeah. Completely. <laughs> um, but it's been interesting. And so that's why um, I spent a lot of time and, and effort to, to really put together like the people I'm working with now in, um, in being in that in line with the different companies that I'm kind of starting right now. And in line with what I want to do, you know, it's like I've done the traditional surf, surf media and surf, you know, professional surf and free surfer thing long enough. Like I don't, I don't need to do it anymore. It's been great. I'm super thankful and I owe the surf industry a ton, but, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta do things that are meaningful and work on projects that are meaningful and, um, so I've just done a, a lot in uh, redirecting and making sure all the brands that I'm working with are kind of heading in the same direction that I want to go. Yeah. And so I just kind of did a whole revamp of, of things lately. So let's talk about that. Um, who are you working with? and Or maybe just start with how do you make a living as a pro surfer nowadays? And Yeah, well, um, the foundation is you can't just – there's only a handful of people that can go and just surf. Like you got to be creating content. You got to yeah. be bringing something to the brand besides just going out and being awesome, right? <laughs> um, so, and you have to have your own brand at the same time, which is I, I hate saying that just because it sounds so like soulless and terrible <laughs> that you're a brand. But I mean, as far as your social media and everything, you have to be bringing something to the table that they can piggyback on. Yep. Um, so I would say more than anything, um, a lot of my stuff is just content production and working with like my brands and, and a lot of consulting in ways, like sure. whether it's um, doing um, design work, working with a design team, um, doing those like two big film trips a year for um, their content and their photos and helping them like, okay... We have I have idea A B C and D. Do they work? I can connect you guys and with any kind of crew to fill these positions to make it the best it can be. Or work with storyline narrative um, and uh, also give them a mutual benefit of interfacing them with some of my other uh, uh, businesses that I'm working with right. or like charitable or positive causes. Yeah. So it's it's super undefined, sure. Now, honestly, yeah. and that's the only way you'll you'll make a living right now is mm-hmm. to be undefined and kind of move like water, you know. Yeah, I Bruce totally Lee style. <laughs> I totally agree. Let's talk about um, you're involved. Like, what what are the companies that you're involved in, and what is 
surf shop box. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So the companies that I've, I've started or, or am involved with, involved with, not just sponsored by. Right. Some, the main one that I've been working on the last few years is uh, Healy, Healy Water Ops mm-hmm. or Healy Water Operations is the full name. And so I do um, basically make very high-end, bespoke, customized adventures in on under the ocean anywhere on the planet for very high-end clientele. So they come to me, they're like, hey, we, we want a yacht or our yacht's going to be here or we want to do something in the Indian Ocean and we're going to have X amount of people. Some guests are going to fly in at a certain time on the heli, bought this, that, and the other. Um, I'm like, okay, do you want the best kite surfer in the world teaching you? Do you want to do um, you know, survival day on an island, <laughs> learn survival skills, or do you want to just relax and we set up a safety team because you want your children safe around the ocean or you want to be safe? Do you want a submarine? Like, wow, anything. Yeah. And that's been super, super exciting. Are there a lot of other brands in that space doing that? Uh, there is in bits and pieces. Okay. Not a lot. Yeah. They will be coming, though. Sure. But I'm already a few years ahead, so yeah, I'm and pretty you're, stoked. <laughs> and your qualifications, you know, speak for themselves. Yeah, and, so. and I think, you know, you pay people what they're worth and you treat them well. Yeah. With dignity. Absolutely. And when you have where a lot of them are, you know, some of them are coming from, which is a, a sponsorship platform that's really a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> and you get a lot of loyalty. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, well, I was sad to see your Instagram handle change. I know. I had to grow up. <laughs> it was a gem. Yeah, the donkey show up. doesn't go over we well with like the <laughs> billionaire's club. Oh, yeah, it just, yeah. <laughs> I had to put my big kid hat on. I, I didn't even, I started Instagram. I, I wanted to have like a somewhat anonymous account that I didn't have any professional liability attached to because yeah. I didn't think it was going to become a big thing. It was, like, we were sitting at a dinner and it was Shelby Mead, who's, who's Kelly's publicist. She's like, you got to get on this Instagram thing. You're not on it. You're blowing it. I'm like, okay, can you set it up for me? I threw in my phone. And then uh, I remember we were talking, Chris Christensen, he made up some some tequila cocktail and he called it the donkey show. I was like, I wonder if donkey show is available. And, it was, <laughs> and that's how it happened. You probably could have sold the name. Actually. I still got it. Who oh, wants dear. to buy it? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, it's funny. None of us could have imagined what Instagram would become, you know? And, yeah. And, yeah. At any rate, what's sh- tell me about Surfshop Box. So Surfshop Box is something that's been really exciting and, like, has blown up really rapidly. Like, it, it's like somebody threw a bunch of gasoline on a bonfire. Um, so it's a subscription-based model. Um, so you become a member. You get a surprise box of gear. That's worth at least $100 retail, and you pay under 50 bucks for it. And it shows up at your doorstep every month. And it's surf and water culture gear and, and just everything that will interest our, our, our uh, um, water enthusiasts. Yeah, exactly. Water enthusiasts, whether it's just something, somebody who lives in Lake Tahoe and likes to stand up paddle just in the summer all the way to the hardcore surfers. So we're, we're, I'm really trying to curate... And, and the team is trying to curate items that can speak to everybody. Right. And um, Kevin Teague, um, who is the, really the, the main brains behind this whole thing, came up with this idea. And he approached me and 
um, I thought it it sounded amazing. Yeah. And I learned through the process of I, I always have some kind of other pursuits that I'm always learning, mm-hmm. like whether it's skydiving or archery and uh, just different things like that, snowboarding. So I know I'm constantly in the state of knowing what it's like, for lack of a better term, a newbie. Yeah. And you're like calling friends like, should I get this? Or is this like too much for my skill level right now and overpriced? Or like I'm going to probably beat up whatever I get more now because I'm a kook. Right. <laughs> or, or whatever it is. So it's I'm, I'm in these other categories. I'm always trying to search out these happy balance things. It's like not too expensive gonna last and and really works with a wide range of ability Mm -hmm. and so try to take that mindset into what we curate with the surf shop box Mm -hmm. and it's our our um members have just been very very positive about it it's been growing really fast it really dovetails nicely with the healy water ops thing which is you're doing these adventures at locations with a small group of people but it's also this is the gear that that group would be using at some point or another, you know, but yeah. bringing it, sending it to people individually rather than exactly. And it's like, it's, and it's putting together different items that are just plain interesting. Yeah. Like that, that our members would just never see coming and it's working, whether it's going out and finding a really good sunscreen brand and putting something like that in there as one of the, usually we have three items yeah. or more. Um, including deals that are only go out to our members that we um, negotiate um, yeah. with the with the different brands that want to work with us, um, and so there's usually a big item, a supporting item, then kind of a satellite item, mm-hmm. and then deals on top of it. Yeah, and and member only content like prints and yeah. t-shirts that are just one off runs for our members. So it's, we really try to do like unique and special things that they're going to value. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so I want to talk about surf film. You were talking about creating content is a big part of being a pro surfer now and a mm-hmm. part of what you're doing. Surfing Magazine is no longer in print. They've transitioned their social media account to something called at Surfer Films. And mm-hmm. they had a hundred or they had a 1.2 million followers. So obviously they just take those people and funnel, funnel them to the new thing. And this Surfer Films is basically a sister account to Surfer Magazine. And it looks like they're just hoping to be like the go-to place for surf films on the internet is Mm -hmm. what it looks like. Uh, But as they announced their launch yesterday on social media, one of the comments that they made was like, if you surf, you probably got into it because of some surf film. You probably watched surfing at some point Mm -hmm. and decided to give it a shot. And I was just thinking like how much the medium has changed from mm-hmm. the endless summer being toured in high school auditoriums to now watching Albie Layer's double alley-oop on an Instagram, you yeah. know. Uh, it's just – it's an entirely different medium. I'm wondering what your perspective is on the medium of surf film. I think it has more importance than ever, but at the same time, it's just changed, you know. So mm-hmm. like – Whose clips do you look forward to watching? Who do you? What do you look forward to? Uh, more than anything, I love Mason Ho's clips. Do you? He's like the most entertaining surfer on the planet. Yeah, you know? um, it's so true. He, they're awesome. Uh, Surfing and being interviewed, like he's just classic <laughs> exactly. across the board. And he's a good guy. I've known him his entire life. 
And uh, yeah, he's. I just really like his approach. It's he's not trying to impress anybody. He's just, you know, you can see it's kind of like music. I've always said that there's a difference, man. You can tell when somebody's putting their their heart behind something. Yeah. Even if you don't even see them perform or whatever, it's just, and it could be any genre. It's like yeah. a guy could be ripping on a sitar or something. Yeah, it's and true. It's like I, there's something different about this. There's a little more drive behind it. Um, and I think it's the same watching people surf. You know, it's like guys like Andy really had that, you know, and, and I think Mason really has that. And watching Dane and uh, Shane Dorian in big waves, it, 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 the list goes on and on. But um, yeah, I just like watching people who it's coming from the heart. Support for this podcast comes from TD Ameritrade. Do you wish you had a second opinion before placing a trade? With a strategy gut check from TD Ameritrade's Trade Desk, you'll get a second set of eyes on your trade idea to help you make decisions with more confidence. Their team of experts are available to help you weigh the risks and potential rewards so you understand the ins and outs of your trade. To learn more about how they can help, contact the Trade Desk at tdameritrade.com slash trade desk. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. In I, I totally agree, and I think um, the sincerity... Like you nailed it. The sincerity is what is entertaining to us, you know. It's undeniable. Well, it gets me excited because, yeah, like, so I'm not just going out on a typical day at Rocky Point. Like, I don't get paid to go surf Rocky Point. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. gives a gives a damn. But, um, you know, you still have it ingrained coming up from professional surfing, doing a bunch of contests when a kid. You're like, God, I blew that turn. I dug a rail. So yeah, I've always surfed better when I'm just like kind of being totally. like doing my thing or at least had a ton more fun yeah so i'd say that watching people do that gets me excited to go go and do it myself even if the waves are two feet yeah i agree what i'm curious what your um what your thoughts are on like the medium of like a feature <laughs> format like um you know john john's three million dollar budget film or i don't know did you see <clears throat> ian walsh's Distance, yeah. distance between dreams like what are what are the relevance of those things nowadays and what influence do they have do they have as much of an impact as things did back when we were spending 30 bucks per vhs you know i mean i for, think i think they do okay i mean uh, for you, you from a blue moon from you know i think that is it's gotten surfing into places in youth culture that it had it permeated out into like that mainstream quite a bit also, from what I hear, that's it's already been pretty darn profitable too. Oh, really? Usually, okay. when uh, big features like that, um, and that was unprecedented, unprecedented as far as how big the budget was for surfing, I believe. Um, usually, they're a lost leader. Right. They're not expected to to make money, and I think Hurley's actually doing well with it. Well, they're expected to lose money, and often in the last five years or so, they're just given away. They don't even yeah. charge for them. You know. Mm-hmm. It's just a marketing tool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, and it's I, I want to work on stuff like that. I was going to ask valued. you. Yeah, I'd rather do that than I mean. There's something that I realized in my surf career, which it you know, there's always the risk of sounding like a whiny professional surfer. Like I will say, it is the best racket on on earth. Sure, it's great. You know, I'm not whining about it. I'm very very blessed to have it and. And have all the opportunities that have been afforded to me through it. 
but especially if you're whether you're a contest surfer or free surfer you get this like unending pressure to be like oh i i have to get the best wave of pipeline this day or i'm gonna get dropped or i have to get this page in magazine which is that's obsolete now you're right uh or and it's just one thing after another and but it opens so many doors and you get to see the planet and get to meet so many awesome people but at a certain point of doing that you're like wow last thing i want to do is like I always wanted to keep in mind of doing things that are meaningful to myself and meaningful and helpful for everybody else. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to look back and be like, wow, the last 10 years, I spent a good chunk of my my free life just worrying about what was the next magazine, the next swell, got to be the guy when I could have been out like saving lives or helping yeah. people or doing something more meaningful. Like, and you just don't want to get stuck in that routine. And then, then your mind goes to, well, if I'm going to do more things in this space, I want to do it big and I want it to be valuable. Right. I want it to be more inspiring than just like, you know, chewing gum clips. Well, do you have any big projects in the works? Any big film projects or opportunities? Yeah, there's um, one that's just been in, that's in the funding phase right now, which would be... Uh, pretty amazing if it goes and it'd be a big wave film called rising atlas and uh that would be you know proper big budget and what's your involvement in it uh i would be one of the profiles characters in this thing but uh is it like a documentary um in a way it it would be um uh, as of now it would be a brain farm project oh nice travis's stuff and everything fantastic yeah very cool. Um, what was the last surf film that you actually paid to watch? View from a Blue Moon. Okay. That was the last one. Because <clears throat> I, I don't know what my answer is to that, you know? And, like, yeah. I want to support the surf community, but as I – and I love the medium, too. Like, I was – I'd save, like I said, every 30 bucks I could to go buy mm-hmm. VHSs when I was a kid. But um, – but and, and I have to honestly say and, like – half of that is me just studying too like okay this is what they did that was a cool shot really <laughs> you know like there's just so you're inundated with content yeah it's uh yeah but but i think uh this whole like inundation and the short attention spans that have spawned from it um i think it's going to bring the best creatively out of people mm-hmm. i you agree know, it's going to take a lot more to stand out of the crowd yeah did you see Let's Be Frank last year? I have. That was awesome. You did? Yeah. Okay, cool. I saw it. See, I didn't buy it because I got to see it when they were um, streaming it on Red Bull TV. And they are again. I thought that was great. Yeah, I thought yeah. so too. Yeah, like, I love Frankie, dude. I've known him for forever. He's, in, he's a classic. Dude. Well, like you're saying, it's going to bring, bring the best out of people creatively. Mm-hmm. That was the most creative surf film I've ever seen in terms of blending narrative and action mm-hmm. with actually a true storyline of him going to Mexico and going to Hawaii and like it mm-hmm. is following his travels the narrative is then of course skewed into fiction mm-hmm. but um, they did a phenomenal job on elevating the art form oh you know? absolutely I was so happy to see that and yeah I think there needs to be more disruptive things in surfing it's you know it's a blessing it's great to see and it's also scary it's so intimidating see, like well just like <laughs> You know, WSL is doing really, you know, they seem to be 
really stepping up their game. But then it's like people are getting fined for saying things right. and like got to wear the same. I don't know. Yeah, like I, it's like I I like it, but a part of me is like, oh, this is kind of scary at the same time. Yeah. Well, so speaking of Red Bull, um, I think they've they've uh, walked that line really. They've walked the fine line really well. Like mm-hmm. they have really slick, amazing production. Like when they did the Cape Fear event and the, mm-hmm. um, they didn't do the Jaws event. They did something else recently. Oh, well, I can't even remember what it was. But it was like they're doing these live streaming events, mm-hmm. but the production is just as slick as WSL. But they don't have the same kind of buttoned up mentality yeah. that the WSL has. Well, that's the really interesting thing, though, right? Is because the WSL has done that before too, with a big cloud break Fiji swell. Um, oh, that's right. Where they just they called off the comp, but yeah. Left. Well, and then there's the other big swell, and they live streamed it as well. That was last year. Okay. And because they, the comp was going to be later, and they're already getting infrastructure there, so they're like, okay, we're going to live stream the swell. Right. And Rebels doing it too, but then it's like, what do the surfers do when? Which it's great and all, but so this has happened to me five times over the last year. You go out, you surf, have an amazing time. You know, it's death to find like crazy stuff goes down. Like Mm -hmm. you have to do CPR on somebody and one of them. And then you go in and they put a five page waiver in front of your face and ask you to sign it. Because you were on their live stream? Because, yeah. Yeah. And they want to use it later. You're like, so I owe it to you to be able, and you're not going to compensate you're not gonna like help pay for my board bag fees coming over so there's gonna be it's kind of wild west with the live stream and it's gonna be interesting to see how it plays out you know i think it's the future but there's gonna have to be a lot of things put in place to where you know people are on the up and up i think i i don't know you know i agree with you that's murky water that they're gonna have to navigate but i always wonder when i watch like like I was walking past a building the other day and um, mm. Julia Roberts' face was on the side as she's the face of Lancome, mm-hmm. you know, the makeup brand. And I'm like, obviously, they're paying her to use her image. But if she walks out of LAX, TMZ can put cameras in her face and then put her image on their show at night and they're earning money off of her image. Exactly. By And so I wonder, like, how, how does TMZ get away with that? She didn't sign a form. If you're you know in public. I mean? If you're in a public place. Right. So that that's might in apply. America. It's different in different is countries. It? Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, there is some weird legal loopholes, though, that people can use to use other people's likenesses, you know? Yeah, probably. Um, and it's just, again, it's like, hey, who knows what the legal side of that is. Yeah. But uh, it'll just be interesting if uh, people try to do things the right way or not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you really hope so. Yeah, you really hope so, and I and I think they they've been trying to. It's just new, exactly. It's new ground. Everybody's saying it's it's so new. Like <laughs> I, I will say with the WSL um, in the last couple of years, I feel like they are trying to do what's best for the athletes, for the viewers, for mm-hmm. everybody. And there may be missteps along the way, like handing you that waiver, but they they are trying to do what's best. They, they are trying, and and that's the thing is that I've been in the position for a while. Of, of being somewhat of a go-between and kind of helping represent the surfer's side of it. And, um, you know, and there's two sides to every story. It's like, yeah, of course. 
if a lot of surfers don't understand the business side and the liability side and the kind of hurdles that a, a, a company that's trying to promote the sport to make a profit has to have. So, you know, it, it, like I was talking about with the with the spear fishermen and the scientists. Yeah, you gotta you gotta meet in the middle. You can't mm-hmm. just bicker and be unwilling to listen to both sides of the story. Um, transitioning into big wave surfing and the experience that you talked about where they either run the contest or they stream the free surf. I love surfing and I want to watch surfing and I want to support surfing, but big wave surfing for me has been something that's been really challenging to watch (laughs) the contests because it's so boring, you know, like there's long long lulls. And I think it's something that the WSL or whomever has difficulty promoting because they have to call on the event with like 72 hours notice. They can't, Mm -hmm. whereas like the gold coast Quicksilver pro event, we have scheduled out a year in advance and we Mm -hmm. know when that window is the big wave events. They have to call on at the last minute. Although on the flip side of the equation, I think it has wider appeal to the public than any other facet of surfing because a non-surfer can appreciate a guy on a 60 foot wave Mm -hmm. more than he can the nuance of Kelly Slater's top turn at lowers, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like it has bigger appeal but bigger challenges at the same yeah. time. Well, the, I don't think those challenges are as big. Okay. I've, I've had this conversation with Paul Speaker before, and the thing is, is you have to – okay, the, the big wave surfing thing, when, it, when it's an event that's really cranking, like the Jaws event or when the Eddy runs, it crushes all viewership. Totally. Records. Those two examples, by the way, were phenomenal events. Right. Well, they had they had this past professional webcast team, um, and but so this is what I was saying. I was I was telling them, like, why don't you do the due diligence of taking everybody that's on that tour and you go and film a piece on them, you know, in their home training, have people get to know them during all of these long lulls, like. UFC was like, you know, un- basically underground sport. If you were to watch it, I remember getting the VHS UFC tapes from Cammies back when it was around yeah. Sunset Beach and, and watching it, just like, this will never catch on. I did the same thing. But you know what? They humanized it. So you have all this dead time to do storytelling during mm-hmm. these events, during these lulls. And the thing is, is you even look at Nazare, that was going to be a first of its kind event and everything, but it was like, like, oh no, it's really going to be up. And it's just because of lack of resources put behind it. It, You know, that webcast could have been a lot better. Camera, like, you got to go do your scout. You got to go pre-shoot your content. Yep. And, you know, maybe you can normalize and average out that viewership then from the cracker jaws events to the ones that are a little slower by having that interesting content but it takes an investment of course and i don't think it'll ever i don't think it's going to catch on without it would and my my thing i was always saying in the meetings i'm like there's nothing that could be possibly worse for this tour than a bunch of guys with less technical ability on 10-foot boards surfing 12-foot waves. Yeah. It's the worst thing ever for big wave surfing. Totally. And they don't want to do it. There's just... There's a lot of challenges. It's like you got to crown a champion with more than one event, you mm-hmm. know, for people to take it seriously. And you got... So they're working and they're trying, but I really think it comes down to writing the check and doing the 
pre-production due diligence. What do you think about the idea of including one of those big wave uh, events on the actual CT? Um, for all the CT guys? Yeah. Like, like I think <laughs> a lot of them won't want to do it. If it's um, like if you Nazare or something like people might could very well die. Yeah, is it that is the sport that much different to where it's different? So uh, and there's great guys that can translate, but if you're going from your super everything that you do all year besides pipeline and maybe chopo is like riding super skatey boards way back on the tail and very high performance surfing, and you're trying to. Transition to not it at at the shortest probably a nine eight if it's a real event with yeah. proper surf and it's just it, it's a different way of riding. It, it is, but I just wonder conceptually or theoretically like we're looking for the best surfer in the world. That's what the world championship tour is. We're looking, you know. I want to see it. I think yeah. it should be like I would like Amen. to slowly transition over that over to that because. 12 foot cloud break or let's say chopu is entirely different than three foot snapper Mm -hmm. so you can make the same argument there you know and they're going from riding a 511 to a whatever they're riding at chokes (laughs) six three (laughs) well john john maybe he's riding a six three there but um you know so i i just think like i would like to see that transition start to kind of happen as a fan i would definitely love it would throw a spanner in the works you know yeah like why not yeah um what are some ways that the WSL could make the big wave tour better for the surfer, for the contestant? Well, A, the prize money has got to re- be respectable. Okay. So, you know, you go on, you know, you have something that, you know, breaks the internet, like a Jaws event, or, and then it ends up on Sports Center, and, you know, Billy Kemper is holding up a, a, he's in a bar holding up a small trophy and a check for, like, thirty thousand dollars right like people are like what this ain't a sport right this is like curling in the olympics yeah you know it's when it what is it i think the big wave event prize money is it was a fifth of what the women's events were but it's just it's disproportional you know got and a lot of guys aren't they don't have a lot of sponsors they got a second job they got maybe families it's a different breed for the most part that's into big wave surfing right and you can't you know, when they're dropping everything last minute to go and jet lag and risk their life to help make you money, like, come on. And you got to f- be compensated. Yeah, to fly to Portugal on a couple days' notice with all the equipment and stuff. It's dangerous. Not, and it's not cheap. <laughs> no. For guys with multiple jobs, you know. Which, at least now, I think, what was it? It's like two, and a, two grand, two and a half grand, you get it for right away for showing up. But that's not going to cover going to Portugal for money. No, no. So if they want, like... <clears throat> The best surfing, there has to be the resources behind it. But I understand it's a business too, and you know I don't know how, what the you know yeah. the balance sheet looks like on it. And yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've for a long time now. I've felt like the largest innovations that we're going to see in surfboard design will be in the realm of big wave paddle surfing. Um, and I also feel like the biggest changes in big wave surfing will happen because of some new board innovation Mm -hmm. you know those things kind of go together but where do you see the biggest areas of improvement for board design and paddle and guns that's an interesting one um i'll explain to the listener real quick like 
you need a lot of foam to paddle quickly. The waves are larger, so they're moving faster. So mm-hmm. you need these giant boards. But once you're up and riding on the giant board, it's a lot less maneuverable. So exactly. we saw we saw Kyle Lenny do an air this year. It's actually stomp an air this year at Jaws, Toe but it was on a tow board, right? Yeah, and he was doing turns in the in the Jaws event, actually, like kind of top yeah. turns. You yeah, know? it's. So where are the biggest areas of innovation? Do you think for board design? Mm. In paddle surfing, biggest innovation. It's yeah, it's it's gonna. We've we've tried so many different things that I feel like it's gonna have to be something somewhat radical. <laughs> like yeah, at this point, almost like. Got it. It's so hard because you're you're really dealing with two completely different. <laughs> like, yeah, like you said, it's got a paddle, and then you know you have all that foam. So more foam is, especially when it's a skipping stone going at you know thirty five knots. Yeah, it's hard to tip over and get on a rail and get that rail to bite, especially when you're hitting big old chops like you are at Jaws. It, it wants to pop that rail back out of the water. What um, about the hydrofoil? The hydrofoil definitely. But it's going to have to get into a place where it's going to have to get into a place where it's going to get a little safer to be in the zone. Yeah. You're not just going to get like tomahawked by that thing every time you fall, I think. Yeah. The hydrofoil has a ton of promise. It really does. A ton. I will, I'm, I'm ordering one. I'm gonna, I was actually meant to call Laird yesterday and ask him if I line if I could, he could line it up for me it yeah. just looks so fun yeah it, it eliminates a lot of the design issues that you have with riding on the water surface mm-hmm. um i just feel like you know the boards that john john's riding at pipe and mm-hmm. the, the places that he's taking off under the lip mm-hmm. and chopu and the how small the boards are that he's riding seemed unimaginable a couple of years ago, and I feel like we're gonna make somebody's gonna make that same transition in paddle and surf too. No, I, it's the wave. Like everybody, I I knew you could you at a certain point you wouldn't, especially on your backhand, wouldn't want to use something over like a six three at Chopo because you just fall under it. Yeah. Whereas so you can do that on waves with a very round barrel shape. Yeah. That just scoop. Whereas you got these big raw open ocean waves like Jaws, you can't do that. The lip will beat you to the bottom. Right. It's <laughs> that lip's covering a lot of ground. Yeah. And even with a big board, sometimes you see guys going straight on twenty footers, and the lip's just there to meet them. Yep. So you can't. It's really hard to be under it. Like there's incredible room for for progress on a lot of different levels, but these are the things that need to happen. You need the ultra talented person that's willing to take crazy amounts of risk. Mm-hmm. And the the amount of risk to achieve these things is so great that your success ratio, if you're like, you know, a super freak like John John, are going to be maybe fifty fifty. And out of that, you know, you try four times, two times you're going to go down, and it's a fifty fifty whether you're going to get hurt on one of those two times. Right. And if you're that much of a young talent, you get hurt. There goes millions of dollars. Yeah. So it's this. You just need a freak. That doesn't care and is willing to get really hurt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, health and fitness has become a real essential component for the success of the peak performers in our sport, whether they're the world champ or 
just the best aerialist, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what's your, I, you're obviously fit. What's your health and fitness regime and routine look like? It, it honestly varies. I just, you know, routine is kind of like a cuss word for me. Is it? I know. Yeah, it's just. You I live like, a nomadic lifestyle. It would I be do, hard yeah. to even maintain a routine. I thrive in chaos. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so for me, it's like I've, I've been doing that gymnastica natural. And you see like John John and D'Souza was doing it before with Kid, Kid Peligro. Which has been great. I've been doing it with him for years. And uh, I only see... I mean, I don't pay that close of attention, but I've only seen that on the North Shore. Are there other Gymnastica schools outside yeah, Al- of the Alvaro, North Shore? who started it, I believe he's out of San Diego now. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's spreading. And um, Can you explain what that is? So basically, it's a set of animal... Oh, it, it's, a, it's a mix between animal movements, almost like capoeira or breakdancing-esque and like some jujitsu kind of like rolling so it's it's meant to keep flow through the exercise okay and there's no weights involved it it really incorporates breathing a lot so breathing correctly and getting your body to breathe efficiently while you're in movement and using strength but it's like all these strength and flexibility movements okay so for me my biggest challenge is always range of motion I'm I'm a beat up like guy at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, flexibility and range of motion is kind of like what I have to really do the most work at. I can get my cardio up in two days. Okay. You know, I can go on a promo tour where it's just been kind of uh, uh, just living a somewhat unhealthy lifestyle for two weeks and within two days my cardio is back 100% or okay. strength comes back really easily. But it just seems for me with all those old injuries and stuff, flexibility and range of motion is what I really got to work at. Okay. And so this kind of hits all of those points. Okay. Um, and besides that, I'm I'm always free diving a ton, you know, a lot more than I'm surfing, honestly. Um, and uh, yeah, being in the water, surfing, and just whatever seems interesting to me that day, whether it's riding the bike up in the mountains above my house. Whether it's going on a, on a hunt, like so you're hiking a long ways and you're dragging a lot of weight out um, if you're successful. <laughs> right. Uh, or just doing beach workouts or, you know, when I come here, I, I go train with Laird and, at Laird and Gabby's house with their XPT life stuff um, and just try to keep it fun. So are you on, the, on Oahu? I'm on Oahu. On okay. North Shore. Cool. Um, what does what your diet look like? My diet is I eat, I try not to do, you know, sh- I, I try to veer away from sugars. Um, I eat, as far as meats go, I eat as much as I can, uh, either meat that I've got myself. So quite a, my red meat is mainly axis deer, and that's coming from either Lanai or Maui usually. Uh, lots of fish that I go and spear um, and then for fruits and veggies I try to keep it as local as possible um, and you know my parents grow a lot of fruits and vegetables and I have a lot of friends and you trade and, and it's very nice living in Hawaii yeah <laughs> you can actually live that way for the most part pretty much the only time you know I'm I'm buying like a main is if I'm 
going out to eat. You're on the road so much, I would imagine that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's just no choices at, at a certain point. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to buckle down and yeah. choke down a freak, whatever you can find. But I take a lot of things like... That's uh, what I was going to ask. Progenics. Yeah. So those supplements are awesome. Like I I really need the meal replacement ones because I have a hard time like getting an appetite a lot of times. So mm. I can force myself. So if I'm on the road or on a plane and I don't want to eat some crappy food, I'll do um, the Progenics build... And then the recovery is huge for me. It's crazy because if you, since I do so many different like workouts, like mm-hmm. I'll hop into one that I ha- maybe I haven't done in a while, just because I feel like it, and I have a really bad habit of just going like a thousand percent anytime yeah. I do it. <laughs> and this is like to torture myself. Yeah. And then I just can't walk for like two days. Right. <laughs> but that recovery, man, it, it keeps me from getting that lag where I'm just like not even capable of working out after. I, I'm like not even sore after wow. blowing myself out. And then there's this other little like supplement that I've been using as meal replacement. It's called HANA. Okay. One H A N A H or H A N N A H. Okay. And, um, it's just this this natural old Ayurvedic recipe, and it kind of tastes like you know dumping grandma's entire spice cupboard in your mouth at once. Sure, but it totally works, works. and gets me yeah. going. What in regard to health and fitness? Do you have any meditative practice or anything other than kind of diet and exercise? Lots of breathing. Breathing is probably what I focus on the most. Okay. Um, is there a method that you study? Uh, I just take everything from everywhere that yeah. I learn and that's what I've had to do from coming from a free dive world and learning about surviving surfing because there's no playbook for it and sure. there's still no real playbook for it right um, and it's yeah taking things from yoga because I do practice yoga quite a okay. bit too so um, taking things from yoga taking things from free diving taking things from like the Wim Hof and XPT life guys and taking things from, and I take all that and then apply what I have my real world experience and I mm-hmm. tweak it to that. What's your breath holding rem- record or limit at this point? Um, I think a couple weeks ago or a, no, that would have been a couple of months ago by now. I did a six ten wow. static just sitting around. I think I could hit seven if I get in the right state of mind. For sure, but um, that's a, that's my high point right now. Yeah, six minutes and ten seconds is a long time. Yeah, you're seeing stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the interest of time, I'll kind of go into closing questions. But are there any projects that you're currently working on that you want to talk about, other than the surf shop box and the mm-hmm. Healy Water Ops? So it's going to be really exciting. It's called eMentor. E M N T R. Okay. And uh, I was just on the phone uh, talking to uh, the founder and partner uh, about the launch that's going to be beginning of March. So basically, it's a platform to connect people with experts, right? So if you imagine the Uber concept, but to connect with skilled people in different areas. Okay. And this is going to start with our, our focuses are surfing right now to get it off the ground. So basically, a curated group of reliable, skilled people. Um, so you can go on an app, say, I'm going to Hawaii. I want a one-on-one class with somebody that's knowledgeable, 
that can teach me and really create an experience. And you look and, you know, say there's 20 different guys who's available these days. What are they rated? This is They've their got fee. customer and, reviews on there and yeah, everything. Yeah, you connect with them. And so it's it's in that area between, you know, a typical surf lesson experience and like Healy Water Ops okay. experiences that, you know, start at $50,000. Yeah. Um, so it's much more for the enthusiast mm-hmm. and we're going to be going off into snowboarding, mountain biking and yoga and uh, branching out from there. Very so cool. it's super exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of demand. and I think so too. And the, uh, Kai Lenny is actually a partner in it as well. Okay. And um, the, the real key to it is just that it's a very heavily curated and trustworthy people. Right that are involved in this so we we really want to be you know the place to go to for for trusted amazing experiences yeah. the mentors can't sign up themselves and create an account they're all no. selected yes yeah that's very cool um what was the last surf trip you took and what's the next surf trip on the books <laughs> see this <laughs> is how much my life has changed <laughs> so <laughs> last surf trip i guess it was i had to go do meetings in san francisco and mavericks was breaking the next day so i canceled a couple other ones that's <laughs> and, nice and went from sf there's been a couple in bay a couple good days this year. yeah there's it was really pumping yeah not too long ago yeah. um besides that what was my last straight up surf trip that's a great question um it's just been short ones for swells yeah yeah i hurt my back was out for two months and just really hungry to surf at home. Um, do you have any surf trips lined up? I'm just playing it by ear. Cool. Right now, I don't. I don't. I think the the concept of, of of booking surf trips in advance is like totally out of the question for me at this point. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's like you. Go, I'd rather I'd rather go to a place for three days, surf my brains out because I know it's going to be pumping, than show up with a bunch of buddies and you end up. You know, drinking beers the whole time, right? Not totally. <laughs> the final question I ask everybody on the show is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard that I rode is a nine-eight Pizel WRV Padillac Quad at Mavericks. It's a big board. Yeah, nobody's ever answered the question with that board before, <laughs> or anything <laughs> like it. Actually, <laughs> that's awesome. All right, well, right on. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate yeah, it. The sap in the trees, if you tap them. There's blood on the seas, if you map them. Christian, if you see your papa, tell him I love him.
Everything that Mark and I discussed is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Feel free to leave a comment or question for anything you'd like me to ask Mark in our next chat. I'm also really excited to share next week's chat with Dane Hance. We do a deep dive into um, a discussion about mental health. He illuminates some real concerns and also misconceptions about the state of domestic board building in the USA. And then also, we of course chat about his insanely beautiful and highly functional Vulcan surfboards. So look forward to that next week. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with Chaz on The Grit, and then Tuesday with Bass on Spit. And then of course, um, you can follow us on Instagram, at Surf Splendor, which is also getting a revamp. And then you can rate and review this show in whatever podcast app you use, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever. That is really helpful for um, helping strangers find our show. So if you can do that, we appreciate that. And until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the water, share some waves, and of course, shred on. All you want to do is be the fire part of fire. See you.